Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Jumpcast, the podcast from the award-winning team behind Jump Cut Online. My name is Sarah and I am your host for another Disney Classics episode. Today we are talking about 1986's The Great Mouse Detective and I am of course joined by my co-host Barry. How are you doing today, Barry? I am very good, thank you Sarah. I am very excited uh, to talk yeah. about some mice today. <laughs> very excited uh, diving back into disney uh not that the listeners will know this but we took a little recording break over london film festival we did uh we both watched lots of films you watched i think double the amount i did or it certainly <laughs> it was, it was felt like it. Together at this point. <laughs> yeah so it was i don't know about you but when i put on basil to watch oh sorry the great mouse detective to use the film's proper name um, when I put that on last night, it just felt nice. It just felt comforting. I was back in my safe place of Disney and just felt, I don't know, just warm and fuzzy. Just being it, back I, in that world. I didn't I have agree. to think too much. And It was nice. Yeah. It was, uh, it was comforting to, to be back. Cause I've <laughs> been so used for the last, I don't know, what is it, 20 something weeks now. This is the 26th film. Mm, um, yeah. But we've been doing it pretty much bang on every single week we've been recording and you know i'm so used to watching a disney film to start the week that not having any for the last two weeks was jarring um, yeah because <laughs> you know festival films can be quite hard and heavy uh so you know to go from like light well not always light you know we know what disney's like but to go from a lovely sometimes cartoon to <laughs> like a, a brutal like two and a half hour film about like horrors and atrocities in the world is you know a a, a jarring experience but it's nice to it's nice to be back. Not that you guys would have missed us because we have been, they've still been releasing weekly. So yeah. <laughs> as far as you know, we've still been doing this every week, but we did we did take a, a brief hiatus that you'll never know. Well, you, now you know because we told you. <laughs> the peak <laughs> behind the curtain. Uh, you now know all of our secrets. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that you, you know, you said, you said Basil as in referring it to the name. It, it, this was, I believe it was released in the UK as Basil the Great Mouse Detective. Um, yeah. So to you know the the technical we we will well I will anyway because I'm used to calling a great mouse detective refer to it as that. Um, but you know if you hear someone say Basil the Great Mouse Detective, they're not they're not insane. They don't know the wrong title. They just you know the title that they were told is correct. But it is called the Great Mouse Detective according to Disney. Uh, mm. So we'll 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 call it that too. Yeah, I did just quickly glance around at my Blu-ray copy of it, and it yeah it, it's it's called that on the front cover as well and i I, yeah i it doesn't need it i don't know no yeah never mind (laughs) i think this film actually this film went through like several like title suggestions which yeah you might cover that in your history bit but (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) um and we've well we have been gone for so long that some actual disney news has happened in breaking uh, news breaking news in the time since we last recorded and I like to hope and believe that Disney, someone at Disney, listened to this podcast, listened to us talking about the content warning that they have on Disney Plus and how it is a little bit flimsy, shall we say. Um, to say the very least. To say the very least, yeah. I think we spoke about this a lot on the Peter Pan episode, and I can't remember if we spoke about it on or off the episode, but you shared with me that it says this film may contain outdated cultural depictions and we were like there is yeah, no that may was, about that was their this. blanket for like any time there was like they did it for jungle book beating the tramp peter pan dumbo any time there's potentially anything they slap mm. on they slap well, i should use past tense now they slapped on this like maybe there's something in it we don't know maybe it's bad hee hee 
<laughs> yeah, but they have now changed this uh, to be in a lot more clear cut. So I will just um, read a little bit out uh, from this article. So this was on the BBC News website. So it says a content advisory notice for racism in classic Disney films in place since last year has been updated with a strengthened message. When played on the Disney Plus streaming service, films such as Dumbo, Peter Pan and Jungle Book now flash up with a warning about stereotypes. Uh, This program includes negative depictions and or mistreatment of people or cultures, the warning says. And it goes on to say these stereotypes were wrong then and are wrong now. The message adds that rather than remove the content, we want to acknowledge its harmful impact, learn from it and spark conversation to create a more inclusive future together. That's all we ever wanted from them. (laughs) Yeah, and that is pretty much like not exactly verbatim, but we we have said that in so many discussions that we've had on this. I think we may have even said that word for word. Pretty much, yeah. Like, you know, all we wanted was it to acknowledge the negative depictions say they were wrong then and are wrong now and also say that you know we we acknowledge this we accept responsibility for this and we want this we want to learn from it and spark conversation from it and it's like fantastic i mean i can't believe it's taken this long i I mean (laughs) disney plus has been around since getting on for a year now november it came out in uh yeah yeah so coming up for its anniversary and it's always had a content warning in place like it like it says in this article but it's it this feels a lot more like disney actually taking ownership of that and being like look (laughs) this isn't just this this film may contain something that's you know could offend or whatever it's saying this film does contain negative depictions or mistreatment of people or cultures they're wrong they were wrong they are wrong they continue to be wrong we're learning we're we're acknowledging that this is a thing that that is harmful um and i just i think it's great to just be that kind of clear on it and not have we this we love to see it we truly do love to see it yeah the, not this kind of wishy-washy it might or it might not have have this in um so yeah it's <laughs> i've just scrolled down to the bottom of this article and it's got kind of all the well, I say all, it's definitely missing some, but racism and stereotypes in classic Disney films. And um, it does mention Song of the South as well, which we do bring up quite a bit. And it says that that is still not available to stream on Disney+. And I don't think it ever will be. I think even with that content warning in place, I think Disney has just completely abandoned that film. I don't think that's ever going to make an appearance. But I, I, I would agree. Um, I wonder if there's, I mean, for those who, uh, you know, because there is no other way to get this film. I would imagine the only way is, uh, the, you know, somewhere on the internet. Mm, yeah. <laughs> it's, probably, it's probably the only way. Or if you can get like an old DVD. I think they released it on DVD at some point. Um, and I don't know if it was in the US or whatever, but I, I guess like if you find that or something like that, that's probably the only way you can. Maybe it's, maybe it's even on YouTube. A lot of weird stuff's on YouTube. You never know. Uh, mm. But Disney has no. I can't imagine them ever releasing it. Although again, they no. they really they 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 should, um, and they should be smart about it. And you know, they do a similar thing on HBO Max with Gone with the Wind, and just have like a brief discussion uh, ahead of time, or uh, you don't even have to force them to watch it, but just have it as an option for people to watch so they can understand that you know things change mm. from 1946 to now. Yeah, I think uh, something like that almost needs a a kind of accompanying 
video or something added at the start like a discussion around it that's more than just kind of you know something you can or can can you imagine that can you imagine they released that and then had a warning that said it may contain (laughs) i mean again i I still don't know how bad it is because i've never seen it um yeah i've not heard anything positive about its representation so uh but yeah Mm. um some some good things happen i you never know it could have been us it could have been other podcasters it could have been just them planning to do it all along but i'm glad it happened and i i am pleased that it did take place yeah we we will from disney for once as they slowly take over the world and make us all slaves yeah (laughs) yeah i mean like we've we've this is kind of i think in a similar vein to when we talked about the rebranding of the splash mountain ride and i think that a lot of the things that have happened in this year have obviously then seen positive change come about as a result of that so i think that obviously it's great that disney are are doing this and you know i think i I don't want to sound ungrateful i'm glad that it's there but i think that there still needs to be more in terms of actually the discussion around these things because obviously even though the warning is now a bit more you know well a lot more clear people can still choose to read that or not read it whereas you know if you are forced to watch something before your film starts which is like this film contains stuff uh i think that is the only way they could ever get away with having song of the south on on disney plus i think that's the only thing they could do but yeah 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 positive steps in the right direction so it's nice to to see see. yeah (laughs) whether Um, we had anything to do with it or not and realistically we probably didn't but i'm gonna take it as a win for us i'm i'm chalking it up as a win and it's uh nice that in the course of doing this podcast series which obviously is taking us <laughs> a fair amount of time um <laughs> that something we've spoken about in the kind of earlier episodes has subsequently changed you know before we yeah. finish finished and, this this series so and we can add pioneers for social change on our cvs now oh, yes. i've been waiting for this <laughs> look at us waiting go for this moment <laughs> <laughs> Oh, right. (laughs) Before our heads get too big, um, let's get into talking about The Great Mouse Detective, uh, which is, of course, the film that we're talking about on today's episode. Um, So our plot synopsis, uh, as always, provided by the lovely folks at IMDb, um, says Basil, the rodent Sherlock Holmes, investigates the kidnapping of a toy maker and uncovers its links to his arch enemy, Professor Ratigan. Um, Yeah. There we go. So, That's accurate. Um, that happened. I, it, I thought. It's, it's, it, I like how it is very, not even kind of in that description being like, yeah, it's sort of like based on, you know, Sherlock Holmes. You obviously make that link. Sherlock is in the film. But it's like Basil is the rodent Sherlock Holmes, like not even like based on, not even yep. loosely connected to, like he is that. Um, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> do you want to give us some interesting stuff and some history, catch us up with uh, where we find ourselves at this this point in Disney's history? Absolutely. So, the 80s. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> not, not a great moment in, in Disney's history. Perhaps the very worst, if you, um, next to, you know, wartime, but that was kind of a time where everyone was doing really badly and there's only so much you can do when a world war is happening. Um, but this was this was a rough period for Disney. I mean, Fox and the Hound did well, but it was also very expensive. 
And then, as we talked about extensively last time, the Black Cauldron was a titanic failure um, and really threatened the state of animation at Disney. You know, we, we have talked quite regularly about how the theme parks are, are booming, merchandise is booming, all their live action films and, and TV are doing extremely well. Um, and they're kind of at a point where they're thinking, do we really need animation? It's very um, cumbersome and, and, and time intensive and very expensive to do. Uh, you know, you can release a number of live action films for the same price as one animated film, and it took you less time to make. Um, but, you know, legacy plays an important role. But then Black Cauldron comes out and you're really faced with a question of, of is this worth it? Because it, it cost them a huge amount of money. They lost a ton of key animators over the 80s to start with, and uh, including Don Bluth, who founded his own animation studio uh, and a number of other key people you know the animators are, are looking at Don Bluth who's really successful now and Tom Tim Burton who was there briefly and is now you know coming into his own as a as a filmmaker and you know I think there's a lot of frustration um for the Disney animators watching this this new generation that's kind of come in we've talked about the changing of the guard that happened with the rescuers and, and Fox and the Hound um of the nine old men kind of departing and retiring although Eric Larson is is um credited as a consultant on this um, but, you know, there's no Nine Old Men really involved. This is the, the whole new generation. And after Black Cauldron, they're really in a place of, is this worth even carrying on with? But perhaps luckily, as we know, animation does not take a year to create it. You know, it, it, usually development is in place for a number of years. And, and indeed, a lot of the times they've been optioning stories 20 to, you know, 30 years ahead of time before they end up making the actual movie. Um not quite the case with The Great Mouse Detective, but it was indeed uh, in development before uh, Black Cauldron came along, so they, they did not shelve it, thankfully, uh, because, as we know, this there were many more films after The Great Mouse Detective. This is 26, and Frozen 2 was 58, so there are many more after this, uh, and, you know, it, it ended up working, but uh, The Great Mouse Detective is based on a book called Basil, or a series of books called Basil of Baker Street by Eve Titus. Um, which are, you know, basically what it sounds like. It's 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 an adaptation. It's, you know, Basil's a mouse, and he is in Baker Street. Um, and they were trying to figure out how to to make this work because they had created these storyboards, and they, they had kind of a story going. Um, and then Michael Eisner, who had recently become the CEO, kind of right before the release of Black Cauldron, uh, saw the film's storyboards, and cut the budget in half. <laughs> and that is not what you want to happen if, if you're an animator, because you know this stuff is expensive. Uh, and they went from about like 30 million to about 13, 14. Some people say low as 10, some people say high as 15. It's kind of a mystery of what the actual budget is, but it's somewhere between 10 and, and 15 million, which, considering they spent about $40 million on the Black Cauldron, is a considerable cut. And as a result of that, you can kind of see... Uh, a, a sort of downgrade in some of the animation. We see the dark outlines returning, uh, leftover pencil marks. Uh, there's very few scenes where there's more than like one character moving at a time. And often, for example, the pub sequence, you can see in the background, uh, you know, the characters are completely still. Um, it's 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 less noticeable in the pub because it's, it's darker and the focus is on like Basil and, and Dawson. But if you look at a few images, you can kind of screenshot any moment from it and see that they're, you know, sitting in the pub talking to each other and then behind them is just like, very clearly like a drawn background with people behind them. So kind of taking a step back from the really lush, uh, vibrant animation of 
Black Cauldron, especially because they put so much money into it. So now they're kind of dealing with how do we make this film still look good and still work well on uh, now a drastically reduced budget. And remember, this budget was cut in like 1984, 1985. So really they had like a year and a half to kind of deal with this adjustment. So they had to work a lot quicker than they normally do. Uh, the production of this film started around 1982, so it's about four years in total, but, you know, you, you've created storyboards up to this point, and then you only have so much time to animate it because they wanted to uh, kind of push ahead and, and rebound, or attempt to rebound, from Black Cauldron as, as soon as possible. So one of the, or really the main way they ended up coding, cutting costs was using computers. Um, a lot of people quote this as the first movie... Um, that uses CGI uh, for Disney, which is very disrespectful to Black Cauldron because it's <laughs> right there. Um, and Black Cauldron is absolutely the first, but this is, uh, you know, they kind of use Black Cauldron to really enhance Black Cauldron uh, with visual effects and, and things like that. But this is kind of almost the opposite approach of, of them desperately trying to save as much money as possible. Um, and you do that by getting the computer to draw things for you. Um, and it worked quite well, to be honest. It, 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 they, it allowed them to create uh, the film in budget and and it it helped them cut costs and it's it's interesting because if you kind of read like Disney press releases or or history they kind of talk about how it was this you know really courageous move by Michael Eisner to to cut this budget back so you know they could find new creative ways to cut costs with animation. I don't, however, think that the animation department would necessarily agree because I don't think this was a particularly joyful period for them. Uh, especially since their lovely studio in Burbank had now become a far less lovely warehouse that they were all moved to uh, as the kind of higher-ups were kind of going crazy about saving money in uh, in animation in particular. Um, so Disney also struggled with um, the ratings for this film from the MPAA, which is the Motion Picture Association of America, who is kind of like the BBFC in the UK and decide uh, on the film's rating. Uh, when they were fine with a PG for Black Cauldron because that was designated for an older audience, uh, but they had quite a fight on their hands when it came to giving The Great Mouse Detective a G rating because the MPAA uh, saw the, how do I put this lightly, the <laughs> sultry dancing of the <laughs> mouse in the pub. And um, in another scene with Radigan, there's a drunken mouse who gets eaten by a cat. Uh, and they thought these scenes were quite adult in nature and wanted to slap the film with a PG rating, but Disney fought back very hard, as they often do, uh, and the MPA ultimately agreed on a G rating because they were able to kind of say, look, we're not endorsing alcohol by having a drunk mouse getting eaten by a cat, and I agree because there's not much that makes... I don't think watching someone get eaten as a result of being drunk makes me want to drink. So <laughs> they're they're right about that. Um, so in terms of saving money, the, the one of the key ways they did it was in the clock scene, uh, which is when Basil and Radigan are fighting inside Big Ben. Uh, so the artist would kind of plot these graphics onto a computer, and then they would print it and, and trace it, which saved animators literally months of work. Um, and as a result, saves you months of paying animators to draw things. So you save a lot of money in the process, and... Frankly, that scene looks amazing. It, it's something I'm sure we'll we'll be talking about at length because it, it is quite an exciting scene. And you can kind of see the progression in such a short period of time from the way they use CGI in Black Cauldron to the way they use CGI in Great Mouse Detective, even though they're only released a year apart. Uh, and this was really... Black Cauldron definitely did start it, but this was kind of the, the, the first time that they saw it as a, a money-saving opportunity. Um, in Black Cauldron, they 
kind of outsourced a lot of the CGI, which they which they did do here because you'll see at the beginning of Great Mass Detective that it's in association with with Silver Screen Productions again. So they do are using outside companies as well, but it's still a lot cheaper than having people draw over and over and over for months and months and months on end when a computer can cut out a lot of that process. Um, Story-wise, little Olivia, who's the, the young girl, mouse, obviously they're all mice, there's no people in this, um, was originally intended to be a lot older and a potential love interest for Basil because Disney cannot help themselves. Um, <laughs> but they did decide that a child would be more sympathetic, and I, I think that's the right decision. Uh, and then, of course, uh, there's no secret that this is heavily influenced by Sherlock Holmes, and, and it's all, you know, this is basically Sherlock Holmes, but mice. Um, and Basil and Dawson were based visually on Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce from the 30s and 40s Sherlock Holmes film series. Uh, but Basil's voice and personality was inspired by Leslie Howard, and Dawson's was animation legend Eric Larson. So there was kind of their way of paying tribute to Larson, and, and Dawson is very much that. And Larson, as I said, one of the Mad Old Men, is credited as an animation consultant on the film. Um, and then, of course, there is, uh, there's Vincent Price as Radigan, who I think... We'll, we'll kind of leave it there because I think we'll we'll have a lot to say about Radigan. He is he is one of the more exciting characters, especially in this period, but perhaps in in all of Disney. Let's uh, let's find out what we think about that later. Um, <laughs> but the uh, the film's original title was going to be the the name of the book, Basil of Baker Street. Um, but Disney executives thought that that would be too British, um, so they settled on the Great Mouse Detective, which really really angered the the filmmakers, and they were. Disappointing because it sounded, you know, so generic. So, in fact, um, animator Ed Gombert wrote this satirical inter-office memo, uh, which has kind of become famous, and, and he suggested generic titles for basically all of the other Disney films. And I would like to read them to you because they are very funny. Uh, so we have Seven Little Men Help a Girl, <laughs> The Wooden Boy Who Became Real, my personal favorite, Color and Music, uh, The Wonderful <laughs> Elephant Who Could Really Fly, the little deer who grew up. <laughs> the girl with the see-through shoes. The girl in the imaginary world. I like this one too. The amazing flying children. <laughs> <laughs> Two dogs fall in love. Uh, the girl who seemed to die. <laughs> what one's that? Is that Sleeping Beauty? Sleeping Beauty, yeah. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> uh, puppies taken away. Sure. Uh, the boy who would be king. A boy, a bear, and a big black cat. <laughs> Robin Hood with animals. Uh, two mice save a girl. A fox and a hound are friends. And the evil bonehead. <laughs> uh, so that that has kind of become a... a, a a pretty famous joke, I guess, for, for Disney insiders. And I, I discovered this recently, and I, I thought they were very funny, so I thought I would read them off. Um, so in, in the cast, we have... Oh, actually, I should talk about music first, because the music is really something. Um, Henry Mancini uh, did the musical score. He has done films you've never heard of, like Breakfast at Tiffany's, uh, and did Moon River, and he's extremely famous. Uh, Pink Panther theme, uh, one of the most well-known musicians i would say um of the you know he's really he's a very prolific uh composer uh, a very famous composer and and really gave a lot of life in the great mass detective and the, and the music is quite something uh i know we've complained about the music 
quite a bit recently. Well, not, well, I say recently, I say specifically looking at you, Fox in the House. Because um, we did really like the music in, um, I forgot what it's called, Black Cauldron. Um, <laughs> but the music, you know, has always been so central to, to Disney. And they had George Bruns doing it for really like 30 years. Uh, and now they're kind of going in a new direction, it seems, with each film. So it'll be interesting to see as we go when we get to some more solid uh, lyricists who, you know, you have Mencken and Ashman who drove so many uh, films in the 90s. Uh, but for now, they're kind of almost almost experimenting with who, or really not experimenting so much as looking at it as a case-by-case basis and kind of going, who would be the best fit for this rather than saying, you, George Burns. Although, to be fair, George Burns was the best fit in basically every single film he did. He was amazing. Um, but instead of having, like, one kind of long-term uh musician or orchestra man or score i don't know any terms anymore i've lost them all but instead of having one artist you know kind of create the sound for each movie they're kind of going with a a la carte approach which is an interesting change uh but henry mancini did the music uh the cast includes barry ingham as basil and when he auditioned they loved it so much that they actually took some of the audio from his audition and used it in in the final film uh, Vincent Price, of course, is Radigan, and Val Betton is Dawson. Um, there are three songs in this one, which we'll talk about soon. Um, two written by Man- or two, the music is done by Mangini, uh, both sung by Vincent Price. And then Melissa Manchester did the uh, Sultry Mouse song that she also sings. Um, but we'll talk about those shortly. Um, one big thing that this film did do is solidify the pairing of Ron Clements and John Musker. We talked about them for the last couple films as well, uh, where they both started uh, with Disney in the 80s, and they both left, or I should say probably were removed from the Black Cauldron because they disagreed with a lot of the uh, story decisions that were being made, so they were kind of put in charge of um, Great Mouse Detective, and they were co-directors. There's four directors credited to Great Mouse Detective, but they were the two key kind of co-directors of the film. Um, and they go on to make many films. They recently, their most recent one was Moana. Um, they're they're still present at Disney and and, and very significant. Um, so the film earned about fifty million dollars worldwide, which was a considerable success considering a budget of about fourteen million. Uh, however. Interestingly enough, Don Blue's company also released a mouse-based film uh, in 1986 called An American Tale, which made almost double, I think, what uh, Grey Mouse Detective made. However, um, both studios are proud to say that it was a sheer coincidence that they both released a film about a mouse in the same year. Who knows if that's true or not, but it's it's kind of fun to think. I want someone to make like a... So David Fincher is releasing Mank this year or later this year i believe which is kind of all about the writing of citizen kane and i would like to see a similar kind of like duel between disney animation studios and don blue studios of like releasing the race to like release a great mouse movie in 1986 i don't know if anyone would watch that except you and i uh but yeah. I, would, I would like to see it um but yeah this so this this not only brought clements and musker together but was pretty essential for the company uh and was kind of the film that showed the people at Disney, the executives, Katzenberg and Eisner and all of them, that the animation could be profitable uh, and did not have to be a titanic disaster that threatened the livelihood of everyone who worked there. Um, And obviously we know that just a couple years later, in 1989, they would release The Little Mermaid and and 
kind of began the so-called Renaissance, although there are a lot of historians um, and, and Disney fans who believe that the Renaissance started with The Great Mouse Detective, and honestly, I kind of agree. I mean, this was the film that kind of saved the studio. We've had a number of films that have saved the studio because they always <laughs> seem to be on the precipice of disaster at this point. Um, but this this really did show them that it was profitable, uh, and they kind of trudged ahead once Little Mermaid, or sorry, once Oliver and Company came out, basically they released a film every year um, consistently for the last, uh, I can't count, 30 years or so. So they basically release a film every year now. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating kind of film because there's also not really any merchandise uh, at all for The Great Mouse Detective, and there wasn't really at the time. There's like a few pins, and, and that's kind of it. And I don't really think there's any references at, at any of the theme parks. So it, it's weird that a film that kind of saved them uh, gets very little recognition. But yeah, mm. that's a, a little bit or, or a whole lot on the Grey Mouse Detective. <laughs> yeah, it does, it does seem to be one of the more forgotten Disney films. I think, I don't know whether it's just the where it appears in that kind of strange place between the Black Cauldron, which was obviously seen as this kind of catastrophic failure, and then you know, three years later, we get The Little Mermaid, and that's the point where everyone kind of knows that that's the when the Renaissance begins, and it's kind of you know the only way is up from there. Yeah. So I think that both Great Mouse Detective and Oliver and Company, they do kind of fall in that in that unfortunate place. I think where I don't think that either of these two would be that high up on people's kind of all-time favourite Disney films. I think that they will be middle to lower tier for a lot of people. Um, and I, I'm, I'm kind of on that page. I, this isn't one that I watched a great deal as a child. And um, when I watched it, actually just before we started doing this podcast series, it was one that Martin really enjoyed as a child. So he wanted to watch it and i thought it was fine but i wasn't really that taken with it um but then rewatching it for uh this episode and i kind of had a good time with it and i don't know if it's just because it had been a couple of weeks since i'd watched a disney film so i was you know like we spoke about i was just happy to be back uh with some cute characters and having a nice time with a disney film but i did enjoy it i think there's there's a lot of good stuff in there there's some not so great things as well which we'll get into but in terms of a adventure story a, a fun caper it i i think it 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 nails it really i mean it's not perfect by any stretch but it has good characters it has some great kind of nods to Sherlock Holmes so if you know you're a fan of of that or detective stories in general there's some some good stuff in there I think especially considering the fact that their budget was you know slashed so dramatically it actually looks pretty good I I did notice some of those kind of things where the backgrounds don't look perhaps as detailed as they have in previous films but I think we've seen that for a little while anyway yeah. and there's there's certainly worse looking disney films i think their previous mouse offering in the rescuers looks a lot worse than this mm -hmm. um and you know sword in the stone as well i really visually just that film does not do it for me at all it's so it's so brown um <laughs> but this film i 
I like that, you know, it's, I think actually I was reading that it's the only Disney film which is entirely at night. Um, So there are no, yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) And I actually thought for a while that the events of the film take place in in one night. Like it does feel like that, Mm. Um, but did a bit more digging and uh, found out. I think it takes, it spans two or three nights yeah, I, I think, think in total probably a couple days or nights yeah but yeah all all the events that we see kind of happen happen at night time so kind of unique in that sense as well and with its time period and and that in mind that it is all taking place at night obviously the colors are darker but i think it still manages to do a lot of great things with that and there's think of you know the moment in the toy shop where there's obviously a lot more kind of color and stuff going on and then the the great scene that we talked about as well in the clock um there are some really great moments in this film and it does retain i think that dark or darker edge that black cauldron um kind of bought in it's certainly nowhere near as dark or terrifying but i mean there's moments there's actually a, a pretty legit jump scare with fidget the bat when he is in the pram made me jump uh i'm not a horror (laughs) person but i was kind of like whoa (laughs) um but yeah i i enjoy this film i think for what it for what it is i was floored by how much i liked it this time (laughs) i remember watching it with my mom at home probably like five six years ago Mm. um and i was like oh this is okay uh, I'm not sure what it was this time. Uh, maybe it's because it's been so long since we've had one I really liked. Um, although I, I was I was <laughs> quite fond of the Black Cauldron in some ways. Uh, I think mm. there's a lot to admire about it, and it's so fascinating, and it, especially learning about its history. Um, but I don't know. There's it's a really I think the Grandmaster Detective is a very fun movie, and I was you know kind of reading over like critical opinions and, and fan opinions, and it seems fairly divided. People are kind of like I forgot this movie existed, or they're like. It's actually quite excellent if, if you give it a chance, and I, I'm kind of on team excellent. Like, I, I don't think this is like, it's not going to be in like my personal top ten or anything, but it, I think it's definitely going to be in the in the top half. Um, mm. I, I really admired it, honestly, in terms of of personal taste. It's probably, um, the three I've the you know since Hundred One Dalmatians, the only two I've really, um, loved have been kind of this and the Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Um, mm. it's been a rough stretch for me and yeah. <laughs> happy to have something that I uh that I I adore. Um mm. there's something about it that really does it for me. I'm not sure what it is and, and it's it's not something that I've I, I did watch it as a kid and I liked it as a kid, but I don't I'm, there's something about it. Maybe it's because, you know, we're talking you were talking about like kind of setting and mood and stuff and, and this is the in, in time and this is the second film so far, uh, that has a specific place and time announced at the mm. very beginning. Uh, you know, Aristocats was Paris in 1910, even though it was basically jazz New Orleans. Um, <laughs> but this time we get London 1897 and and Sarah. These people mm-hmm. sound uh, like they're from the actual United Kingdom. Uh, yeah, they do. You know, uh, <laughs> Olivia's father has a has a Scottish brogue, which uh, we love. Um, but he's that that's the UK. That's allowed. I'll allow it. Uh, you know, people from from London come from all over. Uh, Perhaps not as much in 1897, but I fully believe a Scottish person would be in London. That's not, it's not unfeasible. Um, <laughs> they sound British. It is very British. Um, I'm just so pleased. 
<laughs> Especially coming from one because it, it, it and, and again I'm gonna come after the Aristocats. Oh, actually no, I like the Aristocats when I say I haven't enjoyed any of them. But like, th- I think this is my favorite since Winnie the Pooh, which kind of almost doesn't count because it, it's a collection of shorts. Uh, but my favorite feature non-package film since 101 Dalmatians, and that is what 25 years. It's a long time. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I I I liked the authenticity of it. I liked that it. It's very deeply committed to its concept. Um, it has really enjoyable songs, even though there's only a few. Um, and that's kind of the two of the really big proponents of this so and so so called like renaissance is these like big Broadway numbers uh, that have been hugely successful and, and really kind of the centerpieces of these films and uh, kind of this like total commitment to what they're trying to do. And I think Great Great Mouse Detective has both of those things. Um, granted, there's far less songs than something like uh, Little Mermaid, which we'll get to, or or even Oliver and Company and, and a number of others. Um, but this is kind of, I, it feels like the beginning of, of a renaissance to me, especially coming after a film that, that almost destroyed them. Hmm. Yeah, it's. I think you're certainly starting at this point to see the, the signs of what is literally just around the corner um, for Disney and... Yeah, I I think that if particularly people haven't watched this film in a long time, it might actually surprise you by how fun and enjoyable this this film is. And I certainly as well it, that we've had like a bit of a we've had a bit of a bad run of films. I would say the last couple have been kind of middling to not great. Um. So yeah, I I did find myself enjoying this film and actually i just want a quick note on the songs um i mistakenly said in a previous episode that i didn't think this film had any songs um you then i believe immediately corrected me and um <laughs> both the, the songs uh well the, the the three kind of songs you get in this they're they're pretty good and i particularly am a fan of um i believe the actual title of the song is the world's greatest criminal uh or the world's greatest criminal mind i think world's which is criminal mind, yeah. Yeah, which is Rattigan's song. So we get a villain song, and it's a pretty great villain song as well. Um, I still have it stuck in my head. I watched it last night, and I've just been walking around all day, just like singing like "Oh Rattigan," um, and it's it's pretty great. And I think yeah, maybe we'll we'll get to the the sultry mouse uh song a bit later on because I've got some things to say. Um. But should we should we talk about our our lovely Rattigan because oh with it's with pleasure such a great villain. <laughs> so so for those unaware, Vincent Price is is a legendary Hollywood icon to say the very least. Um, he's got quite a distinctive voice. Uh, he's quite a distinctive character, and and they they kind of struggled when they were thinking of creating Rattigan, but once they knew Vincent Price was involved, they they really did shape. Uh, the character to kind of be Vincent Price as a rat, uh, which he was very honored by. And Vincent Price, if you if you ever hear him be interviewed about this, was extremely happy uh, mm. to be involved and really loved working on The Great Mouse Detective. And it is so easy to see why. I, I kind of... I, he's not a villain that people talk about, um, mm. especially because the 90s are about to happen. And, and with the exception of a few key ones, you know, Cruella, Lady Tremaine, Maleficent, and uh, the Evil Queen in the earlier films. This is kind of uh, 
the nineties is is kind of like the peak of the Disney villain. I think mm. it's fair to say. Like every yeah. film in the nineties has a kind of relatively legendary. Not everyone, but most of them have a pretty legendary villain. Um, especially well, the Little Mermaid eighty nine. But you have kind of back to back. If you ignore the rescue at Den Under, lol. Um, you've got you know <laughs> Ursula. You have Gaston. You have Jafar. Back to back to back, and then you get Scar. Like four of the most well-known Disney villains around, and then you have you know you get you get Ratcliffe, you get Frollo, you get lots of really memorable villains in the '90s. So it's kind of a big key proponent of the Renaissance as well. And I think Radigan is one of the very best, and it really blew me away. I think that's why I liked it so much is that mm. you actually root for him. I think a lot. <laughs> there's there's something so disarming and and charming about him. Um, despite the fact that he's pretty established as very evil, um, he's just so fun and camp and delightful that there's really, there's something about him. He's got that certain, like, je ne sais quoi that just makes you adore him. I don't know if you, I don't know if you are listening in, like, this man is insane, uh, Radigan is pure <laughs> evil, but I, I, there's something about him. I kind of wanted him to win because, let's be honest, Basil is kind of a, a jerk. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> He kind of is. And Rattigan is actually, he's pretty charming. Um, His plot as well, like what he wants to do is not, it's so, it's not incredibly sinister. I think he just wants to just live well, a more. To, he wants to rule the world. I mean, he wants yeah. to. <laughs> but but I, that's, that's fine. Well, no, but I, I know what you mean. But I think what's, what's interesting is, is the way, I think it's kind of a, a joke. I feel like they're kind of joking and like taking the piss out of the Black Cauldron and the Horn King being like, I don't want to like rule everything. Mm. Because Radigan's like plan is so amusing and like so ridiculous and so over the top and unnecessary, <laughs> like everything he does. Um, mm. And it, like basically the plan is to like replace the queen with a robot, hire him as um you know the like special consult and then through that he like takes over via this like puppet queen <laughs> instead of just like the normal person like someone like the horn king would be like kill the queen i'll take over yeah <laughs> you know it's just like it's so madcap and that's very well expressed when he kidnaps uh basil and 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 uh, dawson with his really i think probably maybe the funniest bit in the whole film is this like seven layer trap that like will shoot them, cut them in half, um, like blow them up or squash them with a cannonball, and then take a photo of it, which <laughs> is is so is so funny to me. Like I think this is a um extremely funny movie. I was really surprised how much I laughed and 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 how I just I loved it, Sarah. The more <laughs> I talk about it, I really like, I really am like blown away by how much I I enjoyed it. I I wasn't really expecting to. Because yeah. I had seen it not that long ago, and I was kind of like, "Oh, this is fine." Um, mm -hmm. But Radigan is is so spectacular. It's some of the best voice work in Disney. Yeah. <laughs> I, and like it, it, the character works really well because he's smart and he is very successful most of the time. Like he manages to kidnap them and almost kill them. Mm. Um, you know, he he. It's kind of like Scooby Doo. I almost got away with it. It wasn't for you, meddling kid, kind of thing. Like he he yeah. is a dastardly villain, and we have seen a, kind of a long string of very unsuccessful villains. Mm. Um, who are, you know, I think of someone like Edgar, who like is just a buffoon and can never quite get it done. Um, you, you know, you think of um others who just haven't really, you know, Medusa, 
she kidnapped a kid, like big deal. I don't want to say anyone can kidnap <laughs> a kid, but like she, she does. She, you never really get the sense that she's gonna succeed. You know, mm. there's a, there's the. I feel like the greatest villains like get to that point where you know it's Disney, so you know they're not going to. But there's part of you believes that they could do it. Like Maleficent is so powerful and and so sinister yeah. that you believe Maleficent can win. You believe Cruella de Vil can get her coat. You believe. You know, Lady Tremaine can get away with it. And, I mean, she does get away with it. Um, mm-hmm. but, you know, you you believe that these villains can do something, and I think you believe that Radigan is capable. And the the song, um, the world's greatest criminal mind, does a great job establishing the kind of things he's done. Uh, they talk about how he love how he loves to like drown <laughs> orphans and 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 widows. Uh, you know, he he is he is savage. Um, and he is nice because at the same time, because he takes great care of his cat. Mm. <laughs> he only feeds her the finest henchmen. He tries to feed her the queen, which is like, I would assume, a delicious snack. You know, mm-hmm. um, I yeah. think the queen is very well fed. She's the queen, um, and we, we will get to Felicia because I, I think we both feel the same way about her. For yeah, another we do. Um, but I, I mean, I personally like. I, I guess if I was to stand anyone in this film, it is Radigan. But Radigan's like a, a key character, so he doesn't count for what we're trying to do. Um, mm. But yeah. I don't know. I just Radigan really impressed me, um, especially mm. since we've had such a long string of underwhelming villains, and and the Horn King as well, because the Horn King we talked about it last week was just so evil right yeah. from the get go, and so like all powerful. They're like, where do you go from there? Mm. Um, exactly, but they, they yeah. there's the trajectory for Radigan, um, and I also really liked his sidekick as well, um, Fidget. Who mm. it was funny. I was shocked to find out that it's not the same voice as Creeper. Um, from the black Cauldron, i thought I, that I, yeah right i i wrote mm. down it's literally a creeper clone however i i think fidget <laughs> is much better because fidget is actually quite good yeah at at doing what he what he needs to do like he he completed his to-do list he may have lost the to-do list but he got everything <laughs> on there he he out he outwitted um basil and and dawson uh, you know he he was very impressive to me he got out of the 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 rope that they tied him in, tied him in and, and kidnapped Olivia again. Um, mm. He's he's the king of kidnapping poor <laughs> Olivia. Um, and I was really impressed by the villains. I was, however, a lot less impressed with the non-villains. <laughs> the non-villains? The oh, as in like... Oh, okay. <laughs> we'll come to really them. That was a really weird way of saying that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wait, are there like, slightly less good villains? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we will we'll we'll get to those. But um yeah, I, I just wanna echo all the things you've said about the villains really because they are really great and I think underrated as well. And Very. as you were talking, I was just trying to think about when we kind of got the first villain song. I know this isn't the first one. Um There's one I about say... Captain Hook. Yeah. I don't With think the he villain... doesn't really sing it though. That's what I'm thinking, like where the villain sings a song. I have a feeling it's Madame Mim in Sword in the Stone. But she, yeah, it might. She be. does sing a song, doesn't she? So yeah. I feel it's like that be. might be the first one. <laughs> that's, um, that, that, that's because because one of the staples of the Renaissance is a villain song. Right. Uh, that was every that was going to be my one point, of them yeah. has one. I think except for like Tarzan and yeah. and Mulan. I don't think either of them have. Does Mulan have a villain song? Um no, and Jafar doesn't either. Oh no, wait. What oh. am I talking? I mean, he does sing, but not like a. 
Yeah. Well, not like no, it's not a guarantee for every film of the of the nineties, but many of them have a very memorable villain song, especially two films from now. Yeah, um, like it's it's what they kind of not become known for, but it's like something that I think you come to expect from the Disney films going forward is that they will have a villain song, and I think that it is unfair to credit Little Mermaid as being the one that kind of you know, well we've established it's it's not the first one. But that being the one that kind of started and, like, it off it on as, map. yeah, as like an obvious trend because mm-hmm. uh, Rattigan is right there and he has a song and it's pretty great and it's really I, good. <laughs> I think it does a really good job, like you said, of establishing him as a character and he clearly has this army of of henchmen at his disposal and it's very like everything Rattigan does. It's very madcap and and a bit crazy and it it culminates in him you know feeding this poor mice to his cat because the, you know he was called a rat he is literally a rat his name is ratigan <laughs> he takes <laughs> such great offense at being called a rat and i find that very funny i enjoy the fact that the little mouse uh, is drunk as well um well and yeah that's an interesting sorry keep going no, i, no. I, I want to make a point about him being a rat but keep keep going Okay, I was just going to say, and um, with Fidget as well, like, yeah, I made the exact same note as you where I was like, I need to check if this is Creeper because they sound the same. Um, but it, it's we were right that his voice sounds familiar. Um, the guy who voices Fidget, this is a great name, just to preface, Candy Candido, maybe That's my favourite. Stellar name. <laughs> maybe my favourite name so far. Um, <laughs> he... Pretty much voices every, I'm going to say, gruff-voiced uh, Disney goon or anonymous villain sidekick. He's the whore in <laughs> Sleeping Beauty, right? Or like one of the... Yeah, he's in... Yeah. Um, he's kind of Maleficent's henchman in Sleeping yeah. Beauty. He is in uh, Robin Hood as the guards. Uh, oh, yeah. A bunch of other films as well. Yeah, you look at his um, IMDb credits and... It's pretty much like henchman, goon, someone's sidekick. Like <laughs> he just has, he has a really kind of like great, yeah, like raspy, gruff voice. And I think that they they had to do something with the pitch for Fidget just to make it a bit more high pitch, so it it fit the character better. Um, but yeah, a very recognizable voice. So we were not wrong in thinking that we had heard that voice before, uh, because we had just uh, not in the film we thought. <laughs> I I could not believe because they don't look that different either. I mean, obviously they're yeah. different. Like one's a bat and one's like a little goblin thing. Um, but you know, they're but when Creeper kind of screws everything up all the time, um, Fidget is really successful, which we don't really see. We kind of have a lot of bumbling sidekicks, but mm. this is also kind of the. There's also a lot of successful sidekicks again in in the you know Renaissance. So I mm. I really think that this should be considered as as part of it. Yeah, it's it's at the very least the kind of like pre-Renaissance. I think this is like a definite hint at what is to come. I don't think it, it quite reaches yeah. those same heights, but it's certainly... No, but I mean, but you know, The Rescuers Down Under is in the Renaissance, and this is a better movie than that, as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. Yeah, I'm waiting to rewatch that one because it's been a minute since I've seen it, so I... Mean, I... I, I don't think it is bad, just to clarify. I just I just think this one is better. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I guess yeah. maybe it's just unfortunate that Oliver and Company is in between them, which uh, we'll see. Yeah, I don't I... really remember Oliver and Company that well, but its reception is not as glowing as the others. 
I remember absolutely nothing about it apart from I think there's a lot of songs in it. Billy Joel did the song. Yeah, there we go. That's that's why I know. Maybe it. not all of them, but definitely some. Yeah, certainly some of them. Sorry, you were going to say something about um, yes, uh, Rattigan being, being a, rat. a rat. I think that's <laughs> one of the things. Um, there's always something. The great villains kind of always has something that makes them relatable to some degree, and I think that's kind of it here. Um, mm. There's also the fact that he like is a good pet owner and and loves Felicia. Um, and you know he's he has he has fascinating characteristics and, and he's a lot of fun, but it's he he does really kind of have this outsider status as does Fidget because Fidget's a bat in in a mouse world, um, mm. and he is very I think the reason he's so upset about being called a rat is because a rat is not a mouse and everyone around him is is a mouse and he just wants to fit in really and I think his yeah. idea of his way of fitting in is is to rule them which is kind of twisted but. I, I get it. Um, you know, the 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 best way to be accepted is to be at the top. Mm. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people feel that way. So I, it's, you know, I I liked that aspect of him. I think that humanizes him, but it also, um, allows the animators to have a lot of fun and to kind of like create like eye bulging like craziness that that makes you laugh and and really like him, um, mm. or at least admire him because then you see in that clock tower sequence he becomes like fully unhinged. Yeah. Um, and basically becomes like a, a, a beast almost. Mm. Um, and, you know, he can't hide his uh, quote-unquote difference anymore. Not to say rats are worse than mice. I have no stakes in the mouse versus rat game. Uh, they're both <laughs> rodents uh, work. Live, live your life. Um, <laughs> the, I'm not in either fan club. Um, but, you know, I I, um, I just, it, it, it's interesting that, like, you know, he, he kind of tries to mask the fact that he's a rat, even though his name is Radigan. Although he's Professor Radigan, which I like, because that establishes mm-hmm. that he has a certain level of intelligence, or academic intelligence, at least. Obviously, intelligence is measured in many different ways. Um, but I think that that is a kind of like um, Dr. Facilier in, in Princess and the Frog that kind of just establishes them as a, a very intelligent, knowledgeable person, which which adds to... Uh, the stakes and you know mm. you see a guy who's a professor he can kidnap the the her- the hero or heroes um you know he he is capable he's not a bumbling kind of <laughs> loser that we've come to see in in a number of the films of the 60s 70s and 80s yeah i think for the for the most part as well like we do see him succeed it's it's a very long time into the film before we kind of see his efforts become thwarted. I mean, it really only happens in the last, like, 15 minutes, I would say. And prior to that point, he very much has the upper hand over yeah. our heroes or also non-villains, as you prefer yeah. <laughs> My yeah, favourite. That's the official dictionary term. Yeah, <laughs> a hero is a non-villain. Um, yeah, but he, he, he throughout is more intelligent, more threatening, uh, just seems to have everything kind of under control and has this, you know, army that uh, that are willing to do, you know, whatever he needs, whether it's you know, feeding feeding other ones to his cat or going off and collecting this this list of things that he needs, and he not only succeeds in kidnapping um Olivia's father, but then Olivia and and like I said, getting all the all the things from from the shop that he needs as well, like he. He has everything in place. And I mean, he briefly, at least, succeeds in his plan as well because he creates the little robotic queen. They manage to infiltrate the mm-hmm. the palace and he is, you know, comes out in his 
finery um i really love that moment as well oh he um, looks amazing with his crown and all his jewels and everything caps, like he looks legendary he does he looks exquisite and you know he he does it he does what he needs to and it's only because i would say sheer fluke that yep. <laughs> Basil and Dawson are able to get out of the trap that he has set because it's it's pretty watertight. Um. So yeah, do do you want to? Yeah, maybe let's talk about the, I guess ineptitude. I think that transitions very well. Yeah, that transitions <laughs> yeah. very well to our um non-villain. Um, <laughs> and I I think they should rename this film to like the extremely mediocre mouth detective. I, I, <laughs> I mean, like, what does he? They. So Sherlock Holmes is a is well known as kind of a prickly, relatively unlikable, but ultimately like a genius who can get things done. Mm. Um, I think is his general representation. I I should reveal that I am not by any stretch a Sherlock Holmes fan in any sense of the imagination. It it, it doesn't. It's just not something I've devoted any time at all to. Um, and I've seen very few of the Sherlock series and or films that exist. Um. That being said, this is the best one, based off my sample knowledge of this one, and only this one, um, <laughs> that I can remember. I've probably seen others, but I don't remember them. Um, but yeah, there's there's something there's something about him. He's not very likable. He does kind of he does he does go through development. He becomes less of a, a jerk by the end, but not that mm. much less because he does still cannot remember the Olivia's last name. Um, which is <laughs> just Flaversham. Am I worse than Basil? Is that right? Yeah, Flaversham is right. Okay, cool. See, I'm better than him. That's fine. <laughs> um, and, you know, you get that moment, which I'm not sure if it's entirely earned, where, like, he decides to be, like, best buddies with Dawson. Um, but, you know, he does he does evolve. Um, but mm. he's kind of established from the beginning as very, like, in his own head and in his own world and not really all that interested. He likes to solve crimes, but he, you know... He knows a lot of things and can, can figure a lot of things out and knows a lot of kind of like specific facts. But when it comes down to it, he doesn't seem to be that good at anything because he's being constantly outsmarted by Radigan and and, uh, and Fidget, um, mm. which isn't probably what you want to put on your resume. <laughs> and it's interesting to me that, that I feel like there's so much attention put on Vincent Price and Radigan that they kind of leave the main characters, the heroes, behind. Mm. Like they kind of leave the protagonists to kind of do like Olivia is a you know she's a sweet little girl mouse and that's kind of it um you know we we saw a lot more um in a young female character in Penny in um in the rescuers i think there was a lot more di- dimensions to her um mm-hmm. but in in this case it's very she feels very like a generic child mouse and, yeah. and there's not really much else to her Dawson is kind of like that nice little emotional sidekick um but I don't know. I, I I think that's kind of where the film lacks a bit is mm. is making us really care about these characters, and I think that's maybe part of the reason why I I was kind of Team Radigan because Radigan <laughs> is so much fun and so exciting. Yeah. Um, and also, I'm I'm always here for overthrowing the monarchy personally, so I'm always <laughs> down for that plan. Uh, so you know, go go Radigan. I mean, I guess he didn't really want to overthrow it so much as become it. So I'm not yeah. sure if that's better or worse. Probably worse. Because uh, his ideas were probably more sinister. Well, maybe more sinister. I don't know the queen. I don't know what she's up to. Not Queen Elizabeth. Everyone, calm down. The Mouse Queen in Great. <laughs> uh, I don't know what her plans were. Maybe she, you know, wanted to eat all the poor people. I don't. I don't know what she's up to. Uh, 
This is taking a turn. <laughs> this can be our like next spin-off after we develop the um the villain um, the the madam from the Aristocats. We can we can mm. turn to the queen from Queen. Uh Grey Mouse Detective, who has a ridiculous name that I don't remember. Um <laughs> I didn't even write it down. It's I like Mousiola or something absurd. Um, oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it, it it's something it's something very silly. Um, but you know, maybe she's maybe she's evil. I don't know. Maybe he's actually doing it for the greater good. But the film has posed it very much as he is not, and he is doing it for personal gain and for evil. Um, mm. But yeah, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Do you do you think I'm totally nuts about being on Team Radigan? No, I mean I'm generally always Team Villain anyway. That's true. Um, <laughs> it's and I find as well, particularly when they are quite charming and a bit a little bit of un- unhinged in there as well but also pretty smart and we see them succeed i think that it is quite easy to align yourself with villains who you see actually having the upper hand over the over the heroes and yeah i mean you're right like basil is not the most likable of of characters right at the beginning i mean i, I wrote it in my notes he's he's not very nice to they also Olivia. also this is the second film in a row where the main character is not that great yeah yeah that's very true actually (laughs) yeah yeah and he's yeah he's he's not very nice with olivia and i don't think he was willing to help her he he wasn't you know like oh your father's missing that's awful let's find him it's only when he finds out that this has a possible connection to ratigan that he is you know in in any way shape or form interested in taking on the case so he's not this great you know quote unquote great mouse detective who is willing to help anyone and everyone in need he's very kind of closed off and not particularly likable and i think that he becomes more likable like you said as the film progresses and more likable because of dawson i think as well who is just lovely throughout and i think does a lot of the a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of the case as well like he seems yeah. to come to the conclusions quicker than than sherlock does sherlock oh basil does <laughs> he's basically I'm, sherlock. I'm fairly confident that they could have done it without him right yeah exactly maybe they wouldn't and have it's... survived that like last minute trap thing which i think is kind of the only time they give him like a flash of brilliance but it's also like you were saying like yeah seems more like a very fortunate good luck scenario that they got out of that trap yeah exactly like this is how i see it so uh, think back to uh, school years and you're doing like a group project or something and dawson (laughs) is dawson is the character or the person in that group who does all the work but he's he's pretty quiet he just kind of gets on with it he has the ideas he sort of says things that are intelligent and make sense and that's great um basil is the one who does I, little to no work um makes a kind of like couple of like lucky finds and then at the end when you're presenting uh to the class is the one who takes all the credit for the work because that's he's the charis- cause he's more charismatic right and that is <laughs> exactly what these I characters lo- I, love that. I i totally agree <laughs> this exactly what these characters are like and i was very much a dawson in school like i was the kind of quietly getting on with the yeah, work and me too. Come, you know it's occasionally coming up with the ideas but maybe like being the kind of quieter one and then you've got that one person who's like uh yeah this was all my own work and basically <laughs> i figured this whole thing out and i'm the greatest person ever and yeah. uh yeah 
<laughs> which which actually is why I think at the end he realizes that and he's like, okay, Dawson, you have to be with me all the time. Maybe it's not even like a him evolving as a character, but more like him realizing that he's involved <laughs> and that Dawson actually knows what he's doing. And yeah. he can take most of the credit for it and Dawson seems fine with that. So might as well go for it. I mean, I, I, maybe he's even more evil by the end. Who knows? <laughs> but also, I guess like a a a good and interesting development for him as a character that he realizes that he perhaps can't do this alone. It seems like, apart from the lovely little lady has making him crumpets, it seems like he doesn't have an assistant or doesn't. Those cheese kind of... crumpets sounded really good. <laughs> right, I was. I wrote down like cheese crumpets, <laughs> delicious. I, I watched um, it like first thing in the morning. I was hungry. I was like, oh, that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so he, he Basil doesn't really kind of seem to have an assistant or a number two or a right-hand man or anything like that. Yeah. Um, and I think he thinks he can do it alone, but what this case proves is that perhaps he does need that other person there and they do kind of figure the situations out together or, you know, collaboratively. And then, you know, by the end, he is like, you know, I, I need you with me at, at all times questions actually about what <laughs> what Dawson because at the start it's like he arrives doesn't he and he's off to do something else and it's only because he happens upon Olivia and then mm-hmm. in turn Basil that he ends up in this situation he came where from he... Afghanistan I have no idea what on earth he was doing there yeah um, I think he was serving in the war as like a, a doctor or a surgeon or, or, or something uh, it okay. beats me he wasn't a soldier I mean no offense but like look at him um oh. and like it's he's older as well so he like he's not going to be like soldiers were not especially in 1897 they weren't like 40 50 year olds you know yeah um so he he was not a soldier um i believe he was like a, a, i think they met reference the fact that he was like a doctor um okay oh yeah because yeah. he is dr dawson isn't he yeah yeah okay but like his he wasn't like i'm gonna go to london and find this great detective and work alongside him and i'm i'm a bit i'm just a bit worried that his hopes and dreams of what he wanted to do in london were ruined i've been totally basil. railroaded by basil yeah even at the end he's, he's like, like right. i need a servant <laughs> at the end he's like right that was fun uh i'm off bye now and, and basil's like no you will stay with me forever and i'm like was he was he kidnapped was he <laughs> Is he being kept against his will? <laughs> so I guess our, our real our real spinoff is Basil is the new Radigan. Basil is the true villain of this piece. And... Radigan was actually doing it. <laughs> actually, Radigan was actually trying to save the world the whole time. Yeah. And Basil ruined it. Well, that's Basil. Basil is in cahoots with the evil queen, who motives and uh, you know what she wants to do is unclear, but we can safely assume that she's up to something. And, Radigan uh, just now... wanted to feed all the children who were hungry. He wanted to provide <laughs> universal basic income and free education. <laughs> and the queen said no. The queen <laughs> said no, I want all the money and all the cheese. And that's how I <laughs> Right, okay. I think I, I could do this for another like seven hours, but I think we're, we're veering a bit. Um, we really are, yeah. Let's, let's bring let's, it back. I just want to briefly say credit watch, because I feel like we talk about the credits oh, more yeah. than anyone else on earth. Um, and obviously we saw with Black Cauldron that it's kind of like the first, well, not the first, because we saw it, I believe, with Alice in Wonderland, we got our first, Mm -hmm. like, closing credits. Um, but this is, like, the, Black Cauldron was the first, like, proper closing credits of, like, everyone credited, not just, like, a handful of animators, but all of them and, and, and everyone else involved. It was multiple minutes, which is very much what we're used to now. 
Um, obviously, older films, if you watch any, I, I don't really know any that had like a full closing credit. Sometimes I remember like Citizen Kane, for example, you'd get like the cast again and you'd like see who they are and who they played. Um, but generally speaking, you would have opening credits that didn't necessarily credit everyone, but a handful of the, the key contributors. Um, and then it would just have a, the end title card at the end. Those are those are gone now. Um, but Greatest Mass Detective kind of bridges the gap of both. We get like a brief opening credit segment, and then we get a proper like end credit as well. Hmm. Yeah. And also I, I... another film that opens with the scene before we get to the credits. Yeah, I was just going to say, actually, we get this kind of like cold opening again where it starts starts off the story. And it's actually a quite, I mean, obviously it's happening at night, but um, quite dark. And then we sort of get this, you know, the title come up and the music is very upbeat. And it kind of shows, you know, this film is going to be a caper, an adventure. And it, I think it, it the music does a great job of establishing that tone. And I, I like the, the opening. So good. Yeah, it's so so good, <laughs> like throughout as well. It's and weirdly, it's not one that I could find to listen to. I really wanted to listen to it today as I was. No, I could only find but... like the main theme. Yeah, yeah. I ended up just listening to a um, Henry Mancini um, just compilation Me album. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Which I had a good time, but I wanted Me to too. listen to the Great Mouse Detective soundtrack. Um, okay, shall we? I want to talk. Okay, I want to talk about the animation in this um, because we've kind of we've spoken about it a little bit, and we've mentioned this clock tower sequence, which happens like right towards the end of the film. But I just want to spend a bit of time talking about how great this scene looks, and mm-hmm. I think that what I was so struck by is so I I think you mentioned this at, at the at the top that this was kind of the a real sense of the integration of computer generated and hand-drawn animation and i think that this is the scene where you see this used most effectively and whilst there were very obviously effects that were not drawn in the black cauldron what that felt like was effects added on top of animation yeah. mm-hmm. and you could kind of see where the effects ended and the animation began and vice versa yeah, absolutely. um but this sequence, um, so it's when they're in inside the kind of mechanics of Big Ben. So you've got all these cogs and gears and things turning. Um, and it's this very kind of like dynamic and fast paced action sequence. Um, but how they've done the animation in that scene, and there's a, a very brief, like seven minute making of on the Blu-ray, which I would recommend watching because it takes up no time whatsoever. Um, and you can sort of see like how they created that sequence a little i mean it's like 30 seconds that clip but yeah you can sort of see like what went into it in terms of creating part of it on the computer and then obviously layering in it layering it with the hand drawn characters um and it just it looks great like you just it's get seamless. this yeah you get this real sense of of depth it's it doesn't look like 1980s cgi it looks fantastic and i naively thought that kind of getting into beauty and the beast was the the first time that you sort of notice that cgi and and hand-drawn blend yeah Yeah, that's that was the moment that i was thinking of but no i mean it's it's this isn't it this isn't even the first film that disney use it in but i think that this sequence is really a sign of the great things to come in terms of how these two mediums can integrate 
so yeah. seamlessly. Yeah, it looks it looks amazing. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it it really. Yeah, also, I think there's a lot in this film, and yeah, there's budget cuts, and yes, a lot of times the animation is is kind of just okay because again, you know, this stuff is really expensive. It mm-hmm. takes a really long amount of time to create it. Um, and when you cut a budget in half with like a year to go, it, it it cannot look the way you want it to look. It just won't. However, that sequence in particular is is a real standout. There's a couple other CGI moments that I I notice. Um, mostly anytime they look in the microscope and you kind of they're, they're kind of like rotating the bullets. Mm-hmm. I think that looked really cool. Yeah. Um, and then they look at like the coal markings or whatever on the to do list and, and things like that. And there's there's some interesting moments. There's a moment where he like lights the paper on fire, which I think looked really amazing. I I wasn't sure if that was just hand drawn or, or some CGI stuff, but I thought that looked really good. Um, it definitely has its moments. Um, and that clock tower sequence really is quite something. And I think what this film shows is that this new generation of animators is no joke. Mm-hmm. Um. And that they, and obviously that they're obviously they're not. We see just how amazing they are as we go on into the '90s and the next uh, gazillion films, um, and they really kind of take work to the next level. And that they produce a lot of really beautiful stuff in the '90s. Uh, the 2000s also happened, but you know the '90s were <laughs> a really amazing period for them. And and it, I think it really did all start right here. I mean that's not true because Black Cauldron looks fantastic as well um, mm. in moments, but I think. Like the, it, I think overall, I would say the Black Cauldron is a better looking movie than this. Yeah. Um, very different style, but I think it's, but that also costs like four times as much, so of course yeah. it's going to look better. Um, and that's not, that's, it's very, it's kind of an interesting difference between like animation and live action. Is like, it's it it is hard to create a great looking animated film on a low budget. It is not as difficult to have a very small budget and create a beautiful live action movie. Yeah, um, because there's a lot you can do with lighting and with certain people who know how to, you know, angle things in in ways that other people don't. And it's kind of more about that uh, when it comes to live action. And 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 you can do amazing things with extremely small budgets. Uh, but animation is hard because it it, it is just a it is a naturally it, you know it's an expensive mode of filmmaking. It's, it's very I don't really think there's any way around that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, for, considering you went from about roughly forty million, and they're very secretive on how much Black Cauldron actually ended up costing, but it's <laughs> a, roughly around somewhere between twenty-five and forty-five million dollars. And you you cut even the lowest estimate of that in half for for the Great Mouse Detective, which is made in the same time period. Um, mm-hmm. And then you know, it's it's it, it just can't look the same way. However, you know that that clock tower sequence really is kind of the beginning. Uh, it's not again. It's not like you were saying, and I was saying. It's not the first example of CGI, but it's kind of that real scene where you can see it really working incredibly well. I I was really struck by how like you can tell it's CGI to some degree, but it doesn't look. I don't know how to say it doesn't. You can tell it is, but it also doesn't look like it is. Do you know what I mean? Like it 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 yeah. looks. They look like they're on the clock tower, and I think yeah. that's a very difficult thing to pull off, even now when you're blending like animation and, and, and computer generated imagery let alone mm-hmm. in 1986 when like it was just becoming a thing i think it's remarkable and it's a really amazing scene that kind of almost makes you forget about some of the animation flaws in the previous like 70 minutes this is right at the end yeah yeah i completely agree and actually as i was watching that sequence i had the kind of thought of being like well this is where the budget went but actually <laughs> producing animation in this way was cheaper and there's Mm -hmm. no way that they would have been able to create that effect 
you know in the way that it looks with just hand drawn and it would have cost you know three four five times as much like it would have been insanely expensive so you you sort of think or i guess my thought was that using this you know quote unquote new technology would cost would cost more but in the animation mm. sphere it actually cuts down <laughs> it cuts down the cost because it's the manpower and the technical skill and you know the just the hours as well that have to be spent doing it that is the really costly thing with animation it's not it's not a cheap thing to do so they you know they they worked with what they had but they also maybe that they're having the less you know less budget actually went in this film's favor because it kind of pushed them in that direction of being like okay you know this technology is relatively new but we can use this and you know this could actually work to our benefit and i am glad that they that that's the kind of path they've gone down i think that the purist would sort of maybe say like oh i wish you know the whole thing was hand drawn and whatever but it's just it's not feasible it's not practical um and that's just i mean particularly now that's just not the way things are done i think there's very few films which are exclusively hand drawn there are some but it's it's it now is increasingly rare because it yeah. costs, like like you're saying it costs so much money um yeah. i mean that being said the most and i've mentioned this a few times the most expensive animated film is still tangled which is it's cgi <laughs> which is a, a whopping 265 million dollars which is just yeah. remarkable. <laughs> i mean that film also is wonderful and made a ton of money so it's not like it was not worth it um mm. but yeah no i mean an- animation is i i wonder i can't imagine that would have cost 265 million to animate by hand but it probably they probably wouldn't have been able to do the same kind of thing no. uh, that they were doing with cgi especially with all the hair and everything um mm. but yeah no i think i i think it's a it, maybe it was a blessing in disguise it's probably one of those things in life where you don't re- at the time it seems like it's really awful but when you look back you're like you know what actually maybe this was the right thing to happen mm. Um, so yeah. maybe Disney is right when they say it was courageous of him to slash the budget in half. <laughs> maybe he could have just kept the budget the same and said, also use a computer. I don't know. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the the film thankfully made enough money that it, it was a success. Um, and it allowed mm-hmm. them to continue making films. They kind of had a plan to do, like, films every year. And then basically once there's a gap of the two year between Great Mass Detective and Oliver and Company. And then from mm-hmm. Oliver and Company... Uh, I think there's only one gap in the 90s. There's yeah. no no movie within 93. It's Aladdin's 92 and then Lion King's 94. Yeah. Um, but pretty much, that's the only... There's a couple gaps from, mm-hmm. like, 1989 or 1988, sorry, all the way to, like, now. They mm-hmm. they have very consistent... In some years, if there is a gap, they'll make, like, two in one year. Um, yeah. So, you know, they've... they've this, kind of, this movie kind of started it all, and I, I really... Or not started it all, but started this new... <laughs> um age and i i I kind of feel quite strongly now talking about Mm -hmm. it that this this they should really rethink where the renaissance begins i know the little mermaid is way more popular made way more money and you know i I get that but without if the great mouse detective was another black cauldron we may have never seen the little mermaid or anything else Mm. and yeah i think uh, along with that as well like this film feels like disney hitting reset um because Mm -hmm. of how much of a failure Black Cauldron was. And that was clearly going in a direction where it was attempting to reach an entirely 
different and new audience you know it was kind of going for you know teenage boys or, or fans of kind of fantasy and and, yeah. and that whole thing so and that didn't work and you know to, we had our thoughts on on black cauldron but this this does feel like disney going back to what disney does best which is these kind of fun adventure stories and yeah i i i can buy into that this kind of being the real start of the of the the renaissance and i mean i will say maybe next week when we talk about oliver and company we'll be yeah. like cool well, boy I mean, uh... <laughs> just because it's part of the renaissance doesn't mean it has to be one of the all-time great right movies. yeah I think there's a few in the 90s that aren't yeah. um but you know, it's it's kind of that period, and, it, and if that period symbolizes kind of like great villains, great music, and like a real serious commitment to what they're the the story they're telling, I I think this nails all three of those. Mm. Um, and obviously, there's other aspects that we'll talk about once we will we'll discover as we really dive into them. Um, yeah. But yeah, I just think it's also it's a lot problematic, a lot less problematic than a lot <laughs> of the stories in the '90s. So hey, that's there's that too. Well, there, yeah, there is that, and uh, given the uh, the clear power and influence that we have over Disney making decisions at the moment, maybe like in a few weeks, <laughs> someone will like officially come out and be like, "Hey, uh, so we've actually began." Yeah, so sorry for the inconvenience. <laughs> Y'all say it happens in 1989. Actually, we're pushing it back by three years. Uh, Sarah and Barry made some really great points, and we just want to, you know, acknowledge them for that. This. <laughs> <laughs> This all happens. We can put change the Disney Renaissance on our CV. Oh, I'm adding it anyway. Like regardless of whether they change, (laughs) it's already my my whole CV is just Barry Lovett. Change the Disney Renaissance. Yeah. (laughs) I am a I'm a extreme influencer of uh, all things Disney. That's it. (laughs) Okay. Right. Shall we? I think we need to talk about who we stand this week. Yes, absolutely. I don't want to waste another moment uh, not talking about this fantastic character. Um, The second I saw this character, I just wrote down... uh, What did I write down? Uh, Write down even. Terrible English. Uh, We Stan. Uh, And the character... There wasn't really any doubt. The character in question is Felicia the Cat. And I immediately knew that not only would this be my choice, but it would also be your choice because I know you well enough to know that if Mm -hmm. there is a sassy looking cat uh who's a little bit on the chunky side that I want to know more about them. We'll <laughs> s- <laughs> we will be shouting about how much we love this character. Um she is fantastic. Uh she doesn't say a single thing because she is Not a cat. A um she eats a lot of mice and I love her for it. She is she just she just wants the snacks and you know if there is a surefire way to make me love a character in I feel a we, Disney I film, think we feel very similar about this. Well, we pick Rolly as well for the same reason. Yeah, <laughs> food motivated characters really work for us. They really Winnie the Pooh on a deep level. Yeah, <laughs> character yeah. motivated no, by snacks. You know, there's no doubt. Yeah, um, I will say shout out to Toby. Um, he's a stellar dog. That was uh, well. It's funny you say that. My notes, one after the other, is uh, Felicia the cat, we stan, and then after that, Toby, a very good boy. So, yeah, I mean, we're on the winners page. all around. Um, <laughs> I, I like the little twist that, like, the cat and the dog are pets, uh, and the mm. mice are the ruler, kind of like how they did it with the 101 Dalmatians, of how Pongo and Perdita refer to Anita and Roger as theirs. Um, do they say they're pets? Or... Yeah, yeah, they yeah, do. they do. Um, 
I like I, I uh, it's always fun to have a little twist on it like that. And I like that Felicia in particular, who is gigantic, is uh, <laughs> or at least at least gigantic in scale of these little tiny mice is yeah. is owned essentially by a tiny rat named Radigan, um, which I really <laughs> which I really appreciate it. But yeah, no, I think Felicia is definitely the one. There are good characters in this. Um, mm-hmm. and I was again I was tempted to say Radigan, but basically ever since our first evil queen, who's obviously a main character, we've kind of wanted to go in a direction to. Uh, point out little characters that you may have forgotten about and mm. i think felicia is definitely one of those i mean again disney has like disney does not really talk about this film ever mm. um which is I, I think it's a real shame yeah um because i think it's it's so much better than some of the ones that they talk about <laughs> <laughs> oh man oh man um yeah you know they could they could push this it's it's really it's yeah it's disappointing it's too bad it's it's uh I get why they don't push the Black Cauldron because the Black Cauldron was a disaster for them financially. Mm. This was not. Yeah, it did well. So I don't. <laughs> yeah, and it has cute animal characters. I don't understand why there is not. Well, I'm not that shocked that there's no merch now because it's been a long time. But that they didn't really do any when it came out, which is mm. crazy for, especially for an animal-based film. Yeah. Well, whoever is listening from Disney, if you make a Felicia plush. I will buy. You have it. two customers. <laughs> you have at least two customers. Guaranteed two. So there's there's a there's a floor there. You can only go up from there. I will buy everything with that cat's face on. I don't even care. Same. Um. <laughs> okay. I just I want to let's go to well. There's not really anything too controversial or problematic in this film, thankfully. But I do nice want to... <laughs> it makes a lovely, pleasant change. But I did want to talk about um, perhaps one of the slightly more risque uh, <laughs> elements. So the setting is, uh, and they say this in the film, a seedy pub. Um, I wrote that down because I mm-hmm. liked that that was the terminology that was used. Mm-hmm. And in this pub, we see lots of drinking, lots of smoking. Um, side note, I believe this... It's said that this is like the fourth, uh, the fourth film to feature cigarette smoking, cigar smoking, and or pipe smoking. So the others um, are Pinocchio, Peter yeah. Pan. It doesn't have Peter Pan, but there is definitely smoking in that. Yeah. Um. Um. There's a, you know there's that whole sequence where there's smoke <laughs> in that song that we talked about that I never. Yeah. Heard. What is uh uh hundred one Dalmatians? Yeah, and the Picos Bill sequence in Melody Time. Oh, I would have. I would not have mentioned that. <laughs> Pretty sure. Isn't there another one where like Goofy smokes a cigar as well, or is that in? That's not I that believe... sequence. That's in them. Um, one of That's, the package um... films. <laughs> Isn't that Solid Amigos or something? Yeah, when it's like Gaucho Goofy. Yeah. Okay. Right. So this this thing that I read about there being four films uh, where there is cigarette smoking is incorrect. There is more than that. Um, but anyway, yes, we we do see a lot of smoking in this film, and I think that was mm-hmm. one of the things that censors were a bit like about. But also, it was the eighties, yeah. and generally, you could get away with smoking in films then. Um, yeah. But so the the segment that was almost cut um, was the "Let Me Be Good to You" uh, song, which I like because it's. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit cabaret, um, and I was kind of here for that. But there are some interesting lyrics in that song. I wrote. Tell one... us about them. <laughs> I wrote one down, which is "There's nothing I won't do for you." Um, mm. yeah, she doesn't. She doesn't specify any more than that. But it's. I believe it. It's 
very uh suggestive and yeah so the this segment was almost cut because although brief the lyrics and animation were considered too risque for a disney animated film um however this is what i managed to find out is the animators avoid avoided a pg rating and got the scene kept in by appealing to the censors on the grounds that the segment was a cabaret song and therefore harmless <laughs> um and because <laughs> it gets better and because the character uh because the character singing it was a mouse and not a human it was therefore not questionable right i mean wow. <laughs> that's one way of getting around the senses well look they got away with <laughs> duchess singing about how to turn her on so. this is true yeah because she's a cat so i guess yeah that's that's interesting also can i say justice <laughs> for the other cabaret performers because there was an octopus giving their all and yeah. there was like was it was it like a frog on top of a um I can't remember what it was on top of, or what, maybe it was under something. There were like two different animals on top yeah. of each other, like on a like a unicycle or something, and like they just they didn't even have a chance. They got viciously <laughs> booed the second they appeared. I don't know who they insulted at that pub, but they did not like them. <laughs> they were, I think they were like pelted with the tomatoes and all sorts yeah. of stuff. Yeah, it was it was rough. bottles. That, that was a very seedy pub. They're not wrong. It's very British. <laughs> very british um but yeah i guess the thing that we've learned from this is that if you want to put something slightly suggestive or risque uh in your film just have it be a cabaret song mm-hmm. uh sung by a mouse because that and makes get away with it everything okay we'll, we'll we'll remember that for our madam remake of the aristocats yeah <laughs> yeah we will um can you did you write down any other lyrics because i i i did not i was kind of just floored by it all happening but there is one moment where she like uh, like rips off her outfit to reveal a much more um, uh, suggestive out. Mm, revealing is probably the right word. Outfit, okay. which I was, I was, <laughs> I was just shaken by because I just did not expect to see that in the Great Mouse Detective. Um, that 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 is the moment that really floored me. Like a full outfit outfit reveal to like basically reveal lingerie. I was down very surprising. Well, uh, I've just done a a hasty Google and found yes. the lyrics. So oh yes. Um, it begins, dearest friends, dear gentlemen, listen to my song. Okay, all right. Life <laughs> down here, <laughs> life down here has been hard for you. <clears throat> life has made you strong. Let me lift the mood with my attitude. All right, Oop. not not too bad <laughs> so far. I like that. Yeah. Uh, hey fellas, the time is right. Get ready. Tonight's the night, boys. What you're hoping for will come true. Let oh, me wow. be good. Let me be good to you. Oh. Um. And then, oh, okay. I think the bit you're thinking of when she like does the outfit reveal is, um, so she's like, "Hey fellas, I'll take off all my blues. Hey she fellas, does. there's nothing I won't do just for you." <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I can see why they didn't boo it. Yeah, <laughs> they were lapping it up. Um, yeah, it's quite a, it's quite an interesting moment, and I think there's uh, apart from. Olivia and the Queen and the lovely maid who makes the crumpets. There's not really many female characters in this, and this character. I mean, she's a lovely little mouse, and she's got a great singing voice and a a fun outfit, and she's a great performer. But it's it's not it's not. Uh, this film doesn't do the most for progressive female characters. I feel. <laughs> well, the, yeah, mostly mostly because there aren't there's barely any females yeah um 
So it's it's hard to be progressive if you don't exist at all. Uh, <laughs> this is true. <laughs> no, but you're, you're, yeah, it's uh, it's not necessarily like a a step back because I don't think it's particularly you know it's she's owning who she is and I'm here for that. That's that's yeah. progressive in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, you could argue if it's what the purpose of it is 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 not, and you're probably right to do that. But uh, we don't need to do that. Uh, we can if you want. <laughs> Um, I, I will say there's a uh, move, move, moving on from uh, the sultry <laughs> mouth, which I think is the most polite way we can put it. Um, unless is there anything else you wanted to? No, I think that's it. It's actually a pretty good song, despite its questionable it, it lyrics. No, it is. It is a good song. It, it it is really fun in it, and it it adds to the atmosphere of, of the, the the movie. Has a really great sense of what it is and where it is, and and, and all of that. It's a really yeah. good sense of atmosphere, and and it does a really great job with that. Um, there's a little Easter egg. There's probably loads for Sherlock fans. I'm not one, so I, I couldn't tell you about them. Um, except mm-hmm. like Baker Street. I mean, that's where Sherlock Holmes is from. Uh, wink, wink. I don't know. <laughs> 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 um, in in the uh, toy shop, not the first toy shop where we see Fabership making uh, toys, um, but in this other, it's a different toy shop, right? It's not the same. Yeah, it's different. Yes, when they're when they're in this toy shop, and and Fidget kind of sets off all of these different toys. Um, one of which is a terrifying doll who <gasps> like whose like face shatters, and she blinks even though her face is broken, and that is the scariest thing in this movie, as far as I am personally concerned. I wrote <laughs> the broken in all caps, the broken blinking doll face. O M G! I was horrified. Um, <laughs> but there is um a toy of Dumbo, so there's a a fun little uh wink. And nudge, nudge. Well, not nudge, nudge. So much as this is Dumbo. It's very obvious. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> he's got the little hat and everything. <laughs> yes, it's it's very cute. And he he blows some bubbles from his from his nose like, or from his trunk, 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 trumpet, not trumpet. <laughs> trunk. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, uh, I was just gonna add actually on that that whole sequence. Um, there's a lot of triggering things in that sequence for my various phobias. So. <laughs> the there's like a terrifying jack in the box as well at some point um yeah. i don't i just any of that kind of thing like a anything that's clown like or clown adjacent or mm-hmm. a scary doll is not for me um so i did reminded also... me a lot of um geppetto's workshop kind of yes yeah but way less wholesome. I don't know. It just felt it felt well, scary I don't know. to me. <laughs> we talked about Geppetto's workshop. There's some. There was people spanking, people getting yeah, wasted in his toys. True. You know, people getting violent. <laughs> it wasn't all. It wasn't all of that. It was a much friendlier atmosphere, though. Overall, I definitely agree. Yeah, with that. yeah. W- regarding the the doll, I wrote down horrifying nightmare doll, um, which I believe was referring to that same moment where her face <laughs> shatters in half, but. I think it's the the fact that the doll is like coming towards like the camera as well, and then her eyes open and her face just like shatters. <laughs> I was like, yeah. "This is horrible." Yeah, that was that was intense. That was a whole lot. Yeah, I was like, "I will be seeing this in my nightmares." One hundred percent. Oh boy. Um. Yeah. Just uh, talking about kind of like the Easter eggs we mentioned, Dumbo. There's some. I'm not a big Sherlock fan, so I I. A lot of this kind of like goes over my head, but um, I believe that they did use some uh, archive sound of uh, Basil Rathbone as uh, as Sherlock in one of the kind of movies he did in the forties where he played Sherlock. So, mm-hmm. um, because at moments you sort of see this silhouette upstairs that is, you know, we believe Sherlock. You know, he's playing a violin as well, so we kind of make that connection. 
um and some of the yeah the the sounds they used of the very brief moments where we hear him talk or, or make other noises um was archive sound kind of from those oh. old sherlock movies which i think is pretty cool that's um, very cool I, I, I love stuff like that thank yeah, you for pointing that out because i would not have gathered that <laughs> yeah it's just when i saw he was credited on imdb and i was like oh interesting and then i i was reading into it and it just sort of said that they yeah they used some um like archive sound or just like moments from those films that i think is pretty it would be so fun to like cool. make a movie one day and then be credited in a whole other movie and you didn't even you did, you probably didn't even know yeah right exactly and it's like you, you have the namesake there as well of of the character being called basil who is who is named after um the actor who played who played that's sherlock in those yeah. movies so yeah i think it's that's really that's really cool and yeah you would never no, unless you delved deep into the uh, IMDb <laughs> credits, which is where I find all my uh, all my facts. <laughs> um, um, before we review the themes, yeah, we usually talk about potential for sequels or no, adaptations no. or remakes. <laughs> and uh, Sarah did not think that this had <laughs> any remakes going on or sequels or anything it does not have um uh, an animated straight to video sequel or anything like that although which is interesting i thought because the end kind of suggests an mm. opening for a sequel kind of like yeah. the rescuers did pretty much the same thing um in the in in the fact that like an, a, a woman from Hampstead he says comes and and asks and asks for help and they kind of set it up and then they kind of take that away by like kind of just establishing it as a him and Dawson would go on and insult things but they do mm -hmm. kind of set up potential for a sequel however none is planned and and none has ever been made that being said there is apparently um a live action remake <laughs> and on the way. Uh, when I say live action, they also, for reference, they describe the Lion King remake as live action, which is uh, beyond insane because it, it is not. It is it is animated. They're all CGI. I don't understand. Uh, they're so adamant for it not being animated. I do not know why. Um, it makes less than no sense. But anyway, <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> we'll do that. We'll like that. That episode is going to be like four hours long. Could be like three hours on the Lion King and then an hour on like why we hate the remake so much. Um, yeah. But yeah, this um, there is a remake planned. Apparently, there was no release date or anything. This is this. I think this news broke last year, so it's mm. probably like a good five, four or five, maybe more years, especially now with everything going on. Before we see it, um, maybe it'll hopefully, fingers crossed, it'll be shelved and we'll never have to ever see it. <laughs> um, however, if it makes people watch The Great Mouse Detective, maybe the pain is worth it. I don't. I don't know. Um, yeah. But yeah, it'll be the same kind of thing where. As the Lion King, apparently, where like they're like CGI animals uh, in like live action worlds. Mm. I I do not know any more about it than that, but apparently it is it is on the way. I don't think there's one for Oliver and Company <laughs> planned, uh, but maybe there is, and I'm pretty sure like every '90s movie there's some sort of if it hasn't already happened, it, it's, yeah. it's, coming. Um, it's coming. But yeah, this is uh, this one does have one planned. So, <laughs> hooray i i do not personally i do not want it yeah me neither and the best thing was that you saw me react to this news in real time as i we were both in the shared notes that we have for the podcast and i had already written nothing planned yet and then saw you typing over it and i was like oh no <laughs> he said sent me the link and then i just like typed after it was like oh for goodness sake like, so 
yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I stand who, who corrected. Knows? I mean, there's rumors of a Black Cauldron one. This one seems a little more official. Who, hopefully, you know, lots of things get planned to be made and then never end up happening. So, fingers crossed, this is one. <laughs> Don't want it. Yeah. I think if I just they... want them to just 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 remaster Great Mouse Detective in on like a 4K disc so people can draw so we can release the merch, draw attention to it again. Yeah. Um, you're approaching its 35th anniversary next year, I believe that's right, 86. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So do it. Mm. Celebrate it. It's really fun. Yeah, and I I think if they if they were to do this live action or you know animated remake, make it a different sherlock story like you know the this is very radigan though well oh yeah hang on well maybe it could he could come back in some way i don't know but he didn't die after falling three million feet (laughs) (laughs) i'm just thinking like you know what mice and rats are extremely resilient and they can do anything so it's very possible you never know (laughs) yeah they're like cats they have multiple lives um yeah actually before before i can we just say poor felicia Has a very rough end. She's the only one. Like they don't confirm whether she like dies or not, but at the very least, she is mauled by a whole bunch of dogs. Yeah. Poor Felicia. That's that's quite sad. The the villains really get it in this. Well, Fidget seems to get away, I think. Mm. But Radigan falls presumably to his death. We don't obviously don't see it. Uh, But speaking of presumably falling to your death, (laughs) I guess we should uh, (laughs) talk about just do a brief overview of the four themes we kind of established from the very beginning. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Um, so we've got sidekicks. There's a whole bunch in this. Uh, we've got Dawson is uh, is Basil's sidekick, although you could argue that Basil is more <laughs> Dawson's sidekick because Dawson is the one doing all the work. Um, we have Radigan has a host of sidekicks. He's got Fidget and he's got uh, our lovely Felicia. Actually, you could also argue that Toby is kind of, Toby is definitely a sidekick mm-hmm. to uh, to Basil as well. Sidekicks for days in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Man in Nature, um, well, there aren't any men in it or people in it per se which is interesting because it's kind of um it's one of the very few where there's no people at all mm-hmm. um or at least because i know about, obviously bambi doesn't have any people but there is you know there's very it's very obvious that there's a man involved in the you know and he's a, a central kind of point of the story even though you never see him um but this is one of the very few where it's like you don't see a person do you i know you can kind of like hear sherlock every once in a while but you you can't you yeah, you very briefly at the beginning because I think that um, Dawson is like un like under the carriage that a that a human is in, and I think oh that's he, right because it's it's that kind of like you think it's going to be about humans, and then it kind of goes down to the mouse world, and that's where you stay. Um, yeah. and then I think you just see Sherlock in silhouette. I think that's it. After that, I don't think you see other people. Yeah. So I guess I mean you obviously see the animals working in the in the city and all that so they kind of take the role of man but not a central in, in this one but absence of a parent certainly is i mean her olivia's mother not being well she passed away is, is is a plot point and the fact that her father has been kidnapped is a plot point and i wouldn't necessarily say that any of them kind of become a surrogate father to her mm-hmm. um but not having parents is 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 definitely there as it's so often and disney death um i didn't think we did get one this time but lo and behold uh they really can't help themselves when it comes to disney death um this one is definitely briefer than the last few that we've seen um it's very much like uh i keep wanting to say sherlock basil and radigan both fall from big ben but basil is lucky enough to be holding on to like a propeller of sorts that he 
steers himself back up. Uh, but for a solid moment, uh, it seems like they have both fallen to their death. Uh, Olivia turns into Dawson or her father and, and, and cries. Um, but then it is revealed. We hear the little like squeaking of the of the wheel, which is kind of funny because rodents and hamster wheels. Um, and lo and behold, he he is okay. He is not dead. It is just Disney messing with us again. Uh, <laughs> this is not the last time. There are plenty more. And uh, yeah, there's a little a little brief overview of our four kind of which we I mean we kind of talk about all these things throughout anyway. But it's, it's yeah. good to recap them. Yeah, a quick sort of summary of them. But yeah, I I didn't think there was a Disney death either and um you they always say but like right and this is right at the end as well the, like there yeah. is they, wish, you know, they, they have like we have 10 seconds left what do we do yeah uh Disney death <laughs> <laughs> chuck him off the clock uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> did you have anything uh that you wanted to say kind of in summary or just anything else that you forgot to mention um just as we start wrapping up um just actually Besides the weekly, please watch this. I, I actually feel especially strongly about this one because I feel like it is underappreciated. Um, and Disney kind of has not swept it under the rug because there is, it does get home video releases. It's not like um, Black Cauldron where they've kind of just forgotten about it. But if you look at like the special features on it, it's always kind of a good way to gauge how they feel about the movie. There's basically nothing there. Mm -hmm. um, so they don't have any particularly strong feelings, which is disappointing because this kind of saved them. Um, mm. But I, I would say there's just another thing about Radigan, because I can't help myself. Um, <laughs> the the fact that really the only reason Basil survives is that he's extremely lucky and happens to be holding on to something that can bring him back up speaks to how successful a villain Radigan is. And one of the reasons he's so effective is that he basically does succeed. And he's he comes closer, I think. He comes as close, I would say, to succeeding in his goal um, as the evil queen does in Snow White, which is very close, mm. because she's fully in a coma for who knows how long. Um, and Maleficent similarly as well. She does she does succeed in knocking out Sleeping Beauty. She's just spoiled by, uh, you know, sword and true love and all that nonsense. Um, <laughs> but it's not very often that we see the villain get that close to mm. succeeding, especially in the last couple decades, where we kind of see them bumble along until they screw up. Yeah. But yeah. please watch The Great Mouse Detective. I, I, I think it's um, surprising. You you might just think it's fine, but you probably are expecting it to be pretty bad. And I assure, well, not hopefully not after listening to us talk about it for so long. Um, <laughs> but I was really pleasantly surprised by it. I will admittedly say I had very low expectations based on the last few times I've seen it. I've kind of been like, oh, it's it's there. Um, but I, I maybe it's because it's been a while since we watched a really good one, but I thought it was a really good <laughs> one. I was very pleasantly surprised. And now, after talking about it for so long, I am very firmly on the camp that this kind of began the Renaissance. Yeah, we're 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 sticking with that, and uh, we will await the official confirmation of the the that change coming into effect. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I I um I think maybe not as high on the film as you. I did enjoy it a lot more this time around than I did the previous time that I watched it fairly recently. Um. I I have some issues with it and I think that it's I think just because now we're so close to the 90s and I I can't help myself like that is my era of Disney so this was the you know the the era of Disney that I just didn't see because it was they they obviously had like home video releases but these weren't the sure. films that had like the re-releases that I then saw in the cinema yeah. and, and 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 so on which I did with um a lot of the kind of like early ones like like Bambi and 
um cinderella and stuff like that and then obviously the ones that kind of came out once i was you know alive um i I saw a lot um but yeah i I think if especially like if you're an 80s kid as well like these will be your films like martin really does love this film and i'm like i get it like i can i can see i can see why and i did have a lot of fun with it this time around and as we've spoken about it i've thought about the things i enjoyed even more so i'm yeah i like this film a lot more than i ever anticipated liking it (laughs) which i think we're both in a kind of similar position on that so Mm -hmm. um but yeah go go and watch uh the great mouse detective um it's pretty good and there's particularly some great uh animated moments in it as well and a great villain just a an all-timer villain um (laughs) if we do our if we do our like final episode wrap up or something and we have to like pick our favorite villains if ratigan isn't in my top he will at least be an honorable mention because i love him (laughs) um so before we um head out here we of course want to give a a big thank you and mention to our patreons um i thank you to chris wilson let there be light productions zoe baines daryl griffiths sam luck Orla Smith, Peter Hodgkins, Andy Meakin, Fabiana Rosas, Hamish Calver, and Martin Richmond. Big thank you to those and to all of our Patreons as well who support at the various levels. And um, you can find out how, how uh, let me get my words out. You can find out how <laughs> to become a Patreon uh, on Jump Cut's website. Clearly, I'm so excited about all these Patreons that I have to say, I uh, just get tongue twisted. Um, <laughs> and yes want to give a big thank you as always to you barry uh for just chatting about these great films with me um if you have got anything that you want to plug or mention or just tell people where they can find you on twitter then yeah yeah sure you can find me on uh letterboxd where i uh log the upsetting to some people amount of films that i watch in a year <laughs> um uh, uh, i think it's b levitt and then uh twitter is b levitt 93 uh, I don't tweet that often, but you know, it's exciting every once in a while. <laughs> Very occasionally, there'll be something about football or films, and uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> two great things. Yeah, <laughs> our two great loves. Um, and you can find me talking about similar th- similar things at Sarah Buddery, and you can find all of us at Jumpcast underscore. You can check out all of our written reviews, features, interviews, news, and more at jumpcutonline.co.uk. And go straight to jumpcutonline.co.uk forward slash jumpcast to find out where you can find all of our other podcast episodes. The next Jumpcast episode will be dropping on Monday and we'll be back with a brand new Disney Classics episode talking all things Oliver and Company next Friday. We'll see you then. Mm-hmm.